When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, January 3rd, 2022, the first trading day of the new year. Still sounds a little weird to say that. I'm Maggie Lake here with Alfonso Pecatiello, author of The Macro Compass. Hi, Al. Happy New Year. Hey, Maggie. Happy New Year and Happy New Year to everybody listening to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, I hope it's going to be a prosperous one for everyone. We're certainly going to try to help out on that front. But but before we dive in, and there's so much to talk about, before we dive in, just a kind of a quick snapshot of uh, what the day looked like, uh, UK, China, Japan all closed today, but the US was open for a full session, first full session. And once again, big tech in focus. The NASDAQ was the best performer of the major US equity indices. Apple became the first company to hit a trillion dollar market cap. Tesla up 13% on record delivery. Some of those old familiar names were were leading once again. In bonds, U.S. Treasury sitting at 1.63%. Oil continued its rally edging up a little bit, about 1%. And Bitcoin and Ethereum lower, both lower once again. Um, Alpha, as you sort of, there's been so much talk about maybe that, you know, 22 is going to be volatile or it's going to be harder and there's going to be a lot of chop to get through. Uh, what's top of mind for you as we kick off this new month, new year? Well, the first trading session is pretty telling, I would say. Uh, there's a lot going on for a first trading session. As you said, you know, bond deals are 12 basis point higher and you have equity markets moving already. Uh, you have crypto taking a little bit of a beating. Gold as well, by the way, is down on the day pretty remarkably. Um, one thing I would say immediately is that we have seen, I don't know, a gazillion forecasts, right, for 2022. And uh, a few days ago, I posted something on Twitter that went uh, pretty viral, which was a, a, a basically a scatter chart. It's a chart number three in our deck. It basically shows, also for people listening to it and not rather watching it, how Wall Street forecasts or of the S&P, um, you know, price at the end of next year are absolutely explaining basically 0% of what the subsequent 12-month return of the S&P will be. So literally, there is like no correlation between what these, you know, highly paid Wall Street analysts are going to forecast for the S&P and what the S&P is going to deliver at the end of next year. So you know, if they're giving it a try, we can give it a try too, but the one year ahead <laughs> forecasts don't seem to bring too much information value. So, uh, you know, we have to take this day by day, month by month, and the macro landscape always changes. The other thing I would like to say before we go into, you know, what's likely to happen this year, what are the best risk reward trades out there in, in macro land is that, you know, one of the most important things at the end of the day is to be invested in a smart way. Right, that's what we are all trying to do. And there was an interesting study from JP Morgan. They actually update that, I think, every year, where they take some data from Dalbar, where they look at basically the average investor behavior. That's in chart number two. The orange um, stack, which is the average investor over the last 20 years, has been able to achieve about 3% nominal returns, and inflation has been about 2%. So just a meager performance. They've just managed to keep their purchasing power intact, effectively just beating inflation by a tiny bit. 
that look at the simple 60-40 portfolio that delivered 6.5% nominal mm -hmm. returns each year and the S&P 7.5%. So obviously there are levels of volatility and drawdowns, appetites out there for every investor, but ultimately, I mean, being invested in risk assets is important over the long term and doing it in a smart way is what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think that's so important. And and a, a couple of points you mentioned are so important. First of all, that the the for those who are maybe you know listening and can't see um, the the chart showing the forecast. I mean, this is what all over the map. <laughs> I think that's where the saying came from, right? Because it's true. They they really are. And I think that creates a lot of anxiety when you're trying to figure out what to do. Why is it so hard for the individual investor to come out on top? What is the mistake you think that results? in that JP Morgan study showing that you know you're barely making it above inflation do people trade too much do they they put too much you know faith in one asset class what do you think drives that a couple of common mistakes i would say um while there is an underlying problem which you know real vision for instance is trying to solve democratizing financial knowledge which is financial literacy literally i mean I take Italy as an example. If you end up uh, out of high school or university in Italy, Maggie, you know very, very little about basic economic theory, let alone how to manage your savings. So financial literacy is, is not great all over the world. And I think we can do something at the policy level to make that better. Um, and then there are a couple of recency bias or behavioral mistakes from investors. Um, I, I recently posted something about mean reversion, which, yes, of course, can work and does work in certain strategies. But people tend to think that was what has outperformed against something else must come down, for example, or must mean revert to something because that's how, like it's a little bit like we are hardwired as human beings to think, th you know, to look at a, a mean and then a distribution and say, OK, this must revert back to the mean. Or, for instance, um, taking way too much risks, then uh, your drawdown appetite really is in your portfolio. Um, because beforehand, you make a very loose assessment if you make one at all. Or what kind of volatility and drawdowns can you really stomach in your portfolio? Then you end up allocating way too much to risk assets. And when the drawdown happens, you tend to do the most you know, suboptimal choice, which is to sell at that very moment. And then the third one is that people just... I think just misunderstand the nature of risk assets. I always try to describe being invested in the stock market for the long term as effectively being invested to the growth of the world out there. I mean, if earnings are growing, that's the first very strong tailwind to uh, stock market auto returns. So not being invested into the stock market being basically means that over the very long term, decades to come, you expect earnings not to grow. Of course, the starting point and valuations are important, but mm. there are a couple of behavioral assessments that are not, I think, great out there. And we'll try to, you know, bring out there this financial uh, knowledge democratization process a little bit more. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Uh, Alf, I think that's so wonderful because uh, I mean, I'm raising my hand because I I have felt all those things you just described. And I think, you know, having that, you know, on top of mind for all of us as we try to make decisions is super helpful. Just going back and checking against that. Am I falling into the same pattern and making the same mistakes over and over again? Because we tend to. So that's a super helpful way to think about it. And it's nice to know that I'm not the only one making making some of those uh, mistakes or kind of falling into those habits. So when you're looking at, let me ask you about that mean reversion idea, that what what something that move must revert back to the mean. How are you thinking about that against the context of the S&P 500, especially if we look at some of the stocks moving again today? Tesla, it's a stock that people love to love or love to hate, and some people are convinced it's going to come down, and then other people are, you know, have a different mindset about it and maybe don't realize how much risk there is. I can feel, I feel like it could fall in both those buckets. How do you think about the S&P 500 and a stock like Tesla against what you just described? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. So, um if I take the S&P 500, it obviously has outperformed any other major stock index and let's say jurisdiction. So if I take the S&P against the Emerging Market Index, which is China heavy, but even if you exclude China from the Emerging Market Index, you will find that over the last 12 years, it has relentlessly outperformed. Right. So at some point, people expect this to revert and emerging markets and value stocks and small caps and all, you know, the beaten up stuff to actually catch up to, to the S&P 500. Well, I mean, this might be true, but at the end of the day, what I want to pass as a message is that your, your assessment over a risk reward trade should not be biased by what you you know, what What your uh, bias really is. If your bias is to think that things must mean revert, then obviously you will think at some point, yields have to go up, emerging markets have to outperform, and value stocks have to outperform. And then of course, also, also Tesla and Apple have to mean revert to more decent valuations, right? So when we talk about, you know, these stocks, what you're really talking about is valuations, mm -hmm. because especially for Tesla, if it's true that earnings are, you know, going up and these guys are delivering a little bit more on the core of their business than they were delivering in the past, you know, the heavy lifting in, in the Tesla total return is definitely coming from valuations. And, you know, this valuation heavy part of the stock market is one of the most difficult to comprehend for average investors that over the last you know, 40 years or during their investment lifetime, are not used to see something trading at 30 times uh, sales, for example. That seems really unbelievable and unsustainable. And of course, I'm, I'm not here to say that these valuations are sustainable or likely to stay there forever, but I'm here to try and rationalize why some of these valuations are, are that high, right? So there must be a reason why they are that high. And the average explanation out there is that, you know, as basically your risk-free real interest rate is negative and is very, very likely to remain negative, then if you have an asset class that you know will grow with secular trends, which is this tech-heavy asset class, let's say, and will be able to deliver cash flows, robust cash flows over the long term, then these cash flows are very variable, very, very valuable in a world where your alternative, which is the you know risk-free real interest rate, is actually negative. So when you discount these cash flows that are here to stay in secular trends for a very long time with a discounting factor that is extremely low, which is basically your risk-free real interest rate, you end up at higher valuations. That's what the theory says. Now, are they way too high or are, are they 
high, that's another, let's say, assessment. But, you know, the, the message is let's try to rationalize this process. Sure. And it makes sense because you can think the world should be a certain way, but you kind of have to operate in the one that you're in, right? Like, you, the, and that's, I think, what you're talking about, you know, when, you, when you're talking about the reality of what you have to trade at this given moment, you know, you've got to plug into that, even if you, in your gut, think that, you know, it shouldn't be that high. So you mentioned before this, you know, the uh, value stocks, you know, this rotation into value stocks. And I'm, I was thinking about that today because, you know, back to all of those forecasts, the official kind of official forecasts and strategists that are talking, so many of them, I think there was a poll I saw somewhere, so many of them are saying, this will be the year, this will be the year that value finally, you know, takes over and technology is going to take a back seat. Um, are you buying that? Like, how are you? Let's talk about what you're, we'll talk about what you don't like a little bit later. We'll tease that. But what are you, what are you overweight? What do you like right now in this environment? Are you overweight value? So now I am trying to make predictions. So uh, Wall Street analysts, zero correlation between their predictions and S&P returns. Let's try ALF's predictions against the S&P returns or whatever the market beta returns will be. So in chart number one, uh, this is basically the last piece I published at the Macrocom, but at the end of the piece, there was a table where I told my readers uh, what I was leaning overweight and underweight against what I call the model ETF portfolio, which is, is again, just a, a, you know, a benchmark portfolio I'm trying to use to lean overweight or underweight different asset classes. And so to answer Maggie's question, no, I am not long um, the cyclical stuff here. If you see the, the orange boxes, basically mean I'm a little bit underweight and you will find in there an underweight in the Russell, an underweight in mm -hmm. China, an underweight in, in Brazil equities, for example, an underweight in Bitcoin, uh, an underweight in gold and an underweight in uh, in tips, so inflation break events. And the overweight in there is in dollar cash, short-term cash, and in, let's say, a bunch of growth stocks and uh, low beta stocks. So what we discussed with Darius Dale several times um, as well in the past. So I, I just, of course, here I'm, I'm simplifying in this table to make sure that people can understand what I'm leaning long and short. It's a bit more complicated and detailed than that. But um, if I have, if you really have to be invested in the stock market right now, my suggestion would be, or what I would do would be to, you know, be long low beta stuff and be long certain sectors of the tech market like apple for example um this high quality cash flow delivering tech part and not the highly cyclical part like you know emerging markets i use china and brazil in this example or value or, or you know cyclical stocks like the russell and also um you know this is not the time to be long bitcoin to be really honest or gold or tips for a very similar reason. Um, new money is not flowing into crypto at the same pace as before. And there is a reason for that. You know, the credit stimulus has stopped compared to last year. And, you know, as you expect uh, the Federal Reserve and other central banks to embark in a tightening cycle, your risk-free alternatives or short-term cash will actually start to yield in an incremental way slightly better than it did until last year. So the incremental flows are not there and not supporting for these asset classes like gold or Bitcoin, which are not underpinned by cash flows effectively. And the alternative 
uh, to these asset classes, so dollar cash, for instance, or something very short term and risk free, starts to be on a relative basis a little bit more appealing. And the same for tips, which are basically the reverse of real interest rates, which I expect them, you know, to to go gently up as the Federal Reserve tries to go on a hiking cycle. There's so much to dig in, and we've got some questions as well. But I want to bring bring a. a, a clip from another conversation into it, because I think it'll tie into what we're talking about. Um, and you mentioned Darius Dale. Darius spoke with Jem Carson about inflation and the relationship it has or the impact it has on the stock market. Let's have a listen to that. It's a matter of time. And yeah. we've all seen this cycle play out. Um, you know, and my, my point is, you know, we haven't seen inflation since 1979. Yeah. Um, and you think about the the effects that that's had and how ingrained that that type of period. We're talking two generations. You know, the majority of, of the uh, investment landscape. The, you know, the, the firms that have succeeded have succeeded on the back of, of buy and hold, um, on the back of passive investment, on the back of risk parity, right? Like on the back of all these things that aren't going to work anymore. Yet that's mm-hmm. where all the assets are. And that's the mentality of your average investor. I talk to investors every day, and they're, um, you know, they're completely uh, the concept of non-correlated investment, active management are dead, um, you know, uh, because it hasn't worked. It's too expensive, right? In a market that goes straight up, um, or you know, as long as you close your eyes, it comes back very quickly because you know the Fed's going to step in and do monetary policy. You know, their reaction to that function has changed. Um, you know, and, and more importantly, the government's you know, reaction function has changed. Um, I mean, I, I'd argue, again, next drawdown in the market, uh, you're likely to get more fiscal stimulus, whether it's left or right. And, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know, I think housing policy, right, is going to be, we're going to get some stimulus, you know, stimulus next time the market pulls down. In that respect, I think that's one way we're going to get a lot of fiscal coming forward, protect, particularly for these millennials and, and groups that have really low home ownership, right? You know, these types of things are going to keep now being part of the, popular kind of um, programs now that people have, have experienced that. And that completely uh, you know, creates a different environment for stocks. And that full interview is available on Essential Plus and Pro Tiers. Al, what are you, we're going to get some uh, minutes from the Federal Reserve this week. I believe they're released on Wednesday. What are you expecting when it comes to the Fed? And, and what are we seeing in the bond market? I think this has people confused. Yeah. So today, bond market move is in uh, standard deviation terms relatively large uh, for a single day. So you have, you know, bond yields about 10 basis points higher across the curve with the long end of the curve actually moving even a bit more than the short end of the curve. Um, Actually, I think we first need to break down for a second this bond market move. Mm -hmm. So bond yields can be approximated as the sum of real yields and inflation expectations. And today, what has moved is the real yields part. So real yields have gone up. The bond the bond, you know, bond, bond yields have gone up, but inflation expectation haven't actually moved much. So it's all about real yields today, right? So mm-hmm. when real yields go up, Maggie, what I normally say is as long as the economy is healing and there is a, you know, a cyclical pattern of GDP growth and earnings coming through, and you know, the labor market is healing, then real interest rates can afford to go slightly up. When that is not the case, then uh, uh, move higher in real interest rates actually causes some distress in risk assets. Today, risk assets have reacted pretty well, and there is a reason for it. Real interest rates 
are, in my opinion, able to go up this year without causing too much distress in risk assets because the labor market is healing. The labor market is very hot. We have some tailwind left into the cyclical GDP recovery out there. And another important thing is that real interest rates start from very, very depressed levels. I mean, five-year real interest rates in America are like negative two and a half percent or so. So, of course, you can there is some gentle way up that the Federal Reserve is trying to engineer in this asset class towards policy normalization, towards what I call equilibrium levels. So a move, a move like we saw today, obviously, if you repeat that for a week in a row, 10 basis point higher every day, then at some point it becomes too much. So the pace of this move is important, but as long as it's contained and you know an orderly move in real interest rates up, I think it can happen. Uh, contrary to what we have seen throughout 2019 and 2020, with these real interest rates always going down. And I, I mean, I'd like to to bring the attention of our listeners to long-term trends and cyclical trends. Those are two things that people tend to overlay and confuse and blur, but it's very important to distinguish those two. Chart number six that you know people following this, this show can see, but I'll try to describe it as well for the listeners of the podcast, shows... U.S. debt to GDP, it's the orange line, and 30-year real interest rates in America, so 30-year yields adjusted for inflation in blue. The debt to GDP um, line is inverted in this chart. So basically, the more it goes down, the more the American economy is getting indebted. That's the idea. And the more the American economy gets indebted, the more the equilibrium interest rates, so the blue line, the real interest rates also go down. That's, you know, that's the structural trend. That's what we always do in our credit-based economy. We want to engineer above-trend cyclical growth. We like that. Politicians like that. People like that. We want to feel wealthy. We want to see cash flows. We want to feel growing. Now, we have some pretty strong headwinds in front of us. Demographics, technology, productivity, and the likes of it, which are pushing our trend growth levels to pretty depressed levels. We don't like that. So what we do is we borrow. Mm -hmm. We basically bring pull forward consumption power. We create new credit and we go and spend it. And therefore we feel wealthy and therefore we give a boost to this cyclical growth. And, you know, realized growth is all of a sudden much more acceptable than what the trend growth would Mm -hmm. imply. The only way to keep this system afloat is for real interest rates to trend down as well. So as the economy becomes more indebted, obviously you need to refinance this debt. And if you don't have structural cash flow generating capacity, the only way to do that is to lower your real interest rates. Now, if your house, you need to refinance that at at the real interest rates of 1%, yeah, you can afford the more expensive house, can't you, with the same wage? Mm -hmm. Yes, you can. So that is the trick. People should not forget that this structural trend is actually here to stay. Without this equilibrium, the system would collapse and there is no politician that wants to make it collapse, uh, you know, because otherwise it it won't get reelected. It's an incentive scheme thing. We have seen it through COVID. It was the perfect excuse for a, you know, reset of the system. And even then, we have done exactly the opposite. We have doubled down and tripled down on fiscal policy and monetary policy to make the system actually work again. That's a structural trend. There is a cycle within the structural trend. So, of course, there are you know cycles that can last a year, six months, nine months, mm-hmm. depending on, on, on the situation. 
what I'm arguing is that even if I strongly believe in the structural trend down in real interest rates, during this cycle, we can see real interest rates now cyclically turning up a bit. But yeah. you know, let's not blur the two. One is structural, yeah. the other one is cyclical. It's very important. So you're almost looking at a channel and it's going to move within that, but that channel is headed down. So does that, should we, this idea that we're entering this inflationary period, the Fed's going to be aggressively hiking rates, that may happen, but it sounds like you're saying there's a limit to what can happen because they can only go so far without upsetting the whole system. And all of these disinflationary, deflationary, big structural trends are still in place. Basically, yes. So another quick chart we can pull, chart five, shows that the bond market has been basically saying that for the last 10 years, rightfully so, that if you look at the Fed funds terminal rates, so this is what the bond market has always priced for the last point the Fed funds will be at the end of the hiking cycle. That's that's you know the definition of a terminal rate. Then you adjust that for a 2% inflation target. So what the market is expecting the Fed funds to be in real terms at the end of the hiking cycle. And I put a blue box in the Macro Compass newsletter chart there you can see. And the blue box basically boxes in this number to be between 1% and minus 1% approximately with an average over the last 10 years of 0%. So effectively, the market has never believed the Federal Reserve to be able to hike to any point that would make real interest rates positive. Not three or five or seven percent, just anywhere above zero seems to be absolutely impossible. And today, real interest rates are negative, minus one percent in ten years, implied by the market. I would expect them to slightly, gently trend up, but obviously there is a cap, and the cap is these equilibrium rates, the equilibrium rates that hold the whole system together, that hold the structural trends together, or you know, otherwise the system would just collapse. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So, Alf, this idea that um, I've heard a lot of people say, well, technology stocks are going to sell off because you're in a rising interest rate environment. I mean, if you're talking about what you just laid out, does that dilute or weaken that argument? Well, you know, again, the cyclical and the structural part, if you let Maggie real interest rates actually trend up at a certain point, it, it would hurt valuations. And then valuations explain a large portion of total returns in the technology sector. That's undeniable. But then you go back again to looking at the structural trend. So it depends on what are the investment horizons that people are using here. But cyclically, there might be some pain in there as well. Although I think high quality side um, can benefit still in this cycle together with low beta equity stocks as we have discussed at the beginning there is another another you know part i think in 2022 piece of the puzzle that people are not paying too much attention to which is the chinese communist party politburo will actually have you know their meeting if you can call it like that uh, to set policy for china for the next 5 years and this meeting will happen at the end of this year around october november Right. So it's a little bit like we have midterm elections in the U.S. and then we have the Chinese 
Politburo coming at the end of this year. And you know, Xi Jinping has gone pretty strong in the deleveraging process for the real estate. I mean, it's news of today that Evergrande has actually even asked themselves to stop their, their share from trading because, you know, the situation is getting a little bit nasty out there. We're talking about defaults of one yeah. of the largest um, real estate, Chinese real estate developers, right? So the deleveraging has gone you know, very, very deep in there. And China is not generating nearly the same amount of credit it used to generate to revamp its economy when these sort of situations were happening. So it's very important to see what, you know, the Chinese medium-term objectives are in October, November. And, you know, just to see if this this is just a transition and Xi Jinping wants to deleverage some sectors then to lever up and redirect the Chinese capitals towards some other sectors, or if he wants basically to tighten up the belt overall throughout the Chinese economy and then to move to a different strategy over the medium term. And this is also important because China generates a ton of demand cyclically for commodities, for industrial commodities. So copper is one of those, for example. And even in this case, I think you have to distinguish between long-term trends and short-term, you know, short-term moves. So chart nine depicts copper and it's an estimate that has been made of how much copper production, that's the red line, would be needed and consumption of copper to hit the net zero emission targets by 2040, 2050. And the blue line would be the production and consumption of copper needed in a baseline scenario today without trying to go into the net zero emission base. So if you're trying to push to the net zero, then you move to the red line. And obviously, there is way too little copper compared to the one that needs to be consumed and produced to hit the net zero emission targets. Mm. This is the long-term trend. Now, if you move to the short-term trend, things can go can be very different because copper is still an industrial commodity and it's still driven by, by forces like the credit impulse that can actually drag it down or up during a cycle. I, I think it's so helpful to have you know, to keep reinforcing those two different ideas, because depending on what your time horizon is for your investments, you're going to be really focused on one or the other. You should always have the long-term trend in mind. But if you're a longer-term investor, that perhaps is going to matter a little bit more to you. But if you're, you know, trying to navigate the short term, we have a couple of other, I'm so glad you brought up China and great flag on that. That is going to be absolutely critical in, in the fall. You know, it, China is so important to the global economy right now. We have a couple of other questions on um, geography. Uh, and allocations, which is so interesting. Uh, uh, RIR asking, how will geography affect your uh, 2022 allocations? Specifically, will you shift funds from the U.S. to other locales? And I think we got a hint of that from your, but also Ralph asking, can you discuss your views on Brazil? I noticed that was part of your model allocation. How are you thinking about geography? Yeah, so uh, different jurisdictions have different uh, features of the returns. So if you're talking, for example, stock market in Brazil and stock market in the US, they can be very different. So, you know, Brazil is a, is a commodity uh, country, if one can say, where, of course, it's, it's a high beta country to global growth. It's a high beta country to global trade. So Brazil actually flourishes and any, any commodity related country flourishes when, you know, they are able to um, have trade flows. They're, they are able to import dollars in a very cheap way. And import dollars means basically having trade flows going through. And also when you know politics is relatively stable, when their central banks is applying an, a relatively orthodox monetary policy, which is not always the case in emerging markets, 
And at this stage, for emerging market equities, we are seeing quite a dichotomy in my allocation. So if I would have to be a forced investor in emerging market stocks, then what I would prefer to do is to be slightly overweight um, East Asia, if I can call it emerging market. So the places that I like tend to be Taiwan, Korea. Those are the places that I prefer. The places that I don't prefer much at the moment are the places that have actually delivered over the last year. So that's Russia, for instance, as an emerging market. Those are the energy intense, commodity intense countries that have benefited from the commodity rally last year that I think might be a little bit cyclically overdone. Again, important to stretch cyclically overdone. And you know, Brazil has not delivered much last year. And because the monetary policy has been very orthodox and very front-loaded, so Brazilian real interest rates are getting higher and in the right direction. And because in the second half of this year, if we actually get bank lending starting again in the US, if we get the Fed able to engineer some sort of a gentle tightening without you know, doing too much, let's say, and if we finally get China starting to revamp its credit impulse to deliver you know, a Politburo with a better economy later in fall, then there might be a chance for these more high beta global trade, global economy markets like Brazil to deserve an overweight again, but not at the moment. Alf, we, have, we, we had so much good stuff. We joked when we did an hour not long ago that we're like, oh, that was, but, but we almost need one with you. There was so much good stuff in here, but we know you're going to be on with us again. Um, and I really hope we can hang on to this idea of the shorter term cyclical movements against the structural longer term picture and keep making that distinction because it, it's, it's been so helpful. And I think it's going to really serve, uh, serve our listeners well through the year. So thank, what a great way to kick off the year, Alf. Thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Maggie. Thanks for being a great host, as always. <laughs> all right. Great stuff. And thank you all for watching. Tony Greer will be here tomorrow. I'm sure he's going to have a lot to say on the commodity picture, as always. And remember, the conversation continues over on the exchange. So take care and good luck out there. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.